black students in two different Lubbock County school districts say they regularly experience racism. Families and advocates want changes and have now filed federal complaints. How do we address racism and improve equity in our schools? This is Listen in Lubbock. For Texas Tech Public Media, this is Listen in Lubbock. I'm your host, Sarah Self Walbrick. Today we're talking about an issue that's percolated in Lubbock for months, but really boiled over just before the end of last year. Students in Lubbock, Cooper, and Slayton school districts say they are targets of racist harassment. And now the U.S. Department of Education is looking into it after two civil rights complaints were filed. This story has gotten national attention. NBC News did a deep dive into both of these situations. Correspondent Antonia Hilton was one of the journalists who looked into this. She joins us today to tell us more. Thanks for talking with us, Antonia. Thank you for having me. So first, tell us about what's happening in the Lubbock Cooper School District. How did this start back in the spring of last year? Well, when I talk to the families in the Lubbock Cooper area, they actually say this goes back to the very beginning of the last school year that a number of black families there started to hear from their kids as they came home from the middle and the high schools, that they were hearing constantly racial slurs in the classrooms, in the cafeteria, that they were being made fun of by students called monkeys. Several of the kids told me that kids would play a prank where they'd turn all the lights off in a classroom and say they could no longer see their black classmates. And at first the parents could hardly believe this stuff. And they, in many cases, were actually new to this community in Lubbock. Many of the black families have only moved there in the last two to three years. And so they didn't have that many close connections. They didn't have a ton of resources to immediately jump on this. So they did what most parents would do, start sending emails, asking for meetings with the administrators or principals, reaching out to teachers. The kids themselves told me that they would sometimes say to a teacher, hey, this just happened. I heard a kid use this language. But they say that to this day, now many months later, they don't know of any of these kids that they've identified as being involved in this behavior actually being held accountable. And they see this civil rights complaint as sort of the final straw in a many months process that's been going on locally. And we were grateful to cover this story at NBC News. Um, We're certainly not the first to the story. Local reporters have been on it, but we were grateful to shine a light on this because we think it's part of a broader pattern that's not exclusive to Lubbock and it's not even exclusive to Texas right now. These conversations are happening all over the country. But in my story, we really tried to focus this sort of broader issue through one child. And so for my piece for NBC Nightly News, I sat down with, I spent a couple days with a boy named Brady who was one of the boys who experienced this harassment. And the real breaking point for Brady and some other kids in this district came in April, when one day they were alerted to an anonymous Instagram account that featured the school's logo on it and was encouraging classmates to send pictures of monkeys. In other words, black classmates. And Brady gets a text message, someone alerts him, hey, take a look at this Instagram. He opens it up and he sees his own face, a photo someone has taken without his permission of him on the bus, posted there. Him and his mother were distraught and His mom actually ends up, her name is Tracy, going to the bus stop every day and just looking for any black child she can and saying, hey, can I have your mom's phone number? Can you give your mom my email? And she herself starts to build these relationships among this new community of families of color there 
to start getting to the bottom of what's going on here. And so it's that sort of grassroots effort really started by parents there that has now led to all of this. But all of these parents who previously didn't know each other, the descriptions, their children's stories, they all have very distinct and similar patterns. And again, you know, this is to us a fascinating example because at a time when so many people are talking about talking less about race in school, talking less about inequality and difference, there are a group of parents who are now saying, not only is that not what we want for our children's education, but the reality that they are living day in and day out needs to be acknowledged now. That was a great summary of this situation. I want to kind of tease out some of the things that you've already said and some other details that are at play here. So this wasn't about a one-off situation. This is a pattern of racist behavior that these students are experiencing, correct? That's right. And in fact, you know, it begins last school year. And while the low point for many was that April period where this Instagram account comes out, they say that even going into this school year, they continue to hear this language. Brady tells me that hearing the N-word in the hallways or in the cafeteria is an almost everyday experience. And that despite reporting this, despite their parents posting on social media, going to administrators, they haven't yet seen fundamental change. As you said, the civil rights complaint was a last resort. The parents and families tried to work with the school district. What were some of the steps that were taken before it got to this point? There were a number of steps taken. So first, parents just wrote emails to administrators saying, hey, you know, my child just came home. They said they heard this remark, this interaction happened. Could, you know, somebody address this? Is anything going to be done? Could I come in and have a meeting with so-and-so? Different parents reaching out to different administrators at different points. And in some cases, they were able to have discussions or at least have email conversations back and forth. And the real crux of the issue from the parents here is that none of those things really were followed up on. There wasn't any report given to them. But what they wanted was some kind of update on the investigation, clarity about what steps the school district was going to take. In the case of the Instagram, a report back, whether it was from administrators or from the school board presenting to the community, because it had gotten out, everybody knew that this Instagram was there, giving some sense of accountability. They still haven't found who did this, but some kind of larger report that would make people feel like the school district cared and took action on behalf of these students of color. And the parents say that simply hasn't happened. And so they've filed these complaints. They've worked with civil rights lawyers because they feel like their students' rights are being violated. Their right to be able to go to school, to feel safe, to be treated equally, and to have you know school policies applied when they are harmed, that's really all that's central here. So for these parents, it's really a simple complaint. It's not that they blame the teachers or the administrators for how other students behave when they come to school, but they do. You know, one parent described it to me as, when you have my kids for you know say eight hours a day, in some ways you're a supplementary parent. You have to prevent. You have to do your best to respond to harm that comes their way. That's a crucial part of the rule. And that children of all backgrounds have a right to that kind of safe environment in school. And so that's really the conversations that's playing out here. You know, I got to sit down with uh, the superintendent of the school district who described to me some of the investigatory steps that they took. But it appears to me like there's a gap in communication there. The school has taken certain steps, but the black families are saying they've never heard from the schools. They weren't included in an understanding of what the next steps might look like. They didn't hear about any disciplinary steps that were finally taken. And so these kids, they ultimately feel like they're not safe at this school district. 
And I mean, we all remember being kids to feel like you don't, you're trust or that you're not liked or loved by the adults around you in a school system. You know, that's an incredibly painful place to be. Absolutely. Through NBC News' reporting, we've also learned of racism in Slayton ISD. This story has really weighed on me. And some comments that I've heard since it was first published are that nobody knew this was happening necessarily in Slayton, Texas. This particular topic and story kind of came as a surprise to, I think, people who were already working in this space even. So, Antonia, tell us about one Black senior's experience at that high school. Yeah, you know, you, you said that this weighed on you, and it really weighed on me and on my colleague, uh, Mike Hicksenbaugh. He and I worked together on a lot of this reporting, and while I was in Lubbock, in, in the Lubbock Cooper School District, he was in Slayton. I mean, on the very same days, and we were getting dinner together afterwards and kind of comparing notes. And what I would say is that what we're seeing here are, again, these sort of patterns that aren't limited to one school district, but are part of these sort of broader communal changes. First, though, I'll dig into the story of Autumn. So Autumn is a teenager. She was a senior in Slayton ISD, and she was a straight A student, a really well-known student, someone who participated in all their classes, has very ambitious goals for themselves, not someone who had a disciplinary record at all. And at the beginning of this school year, Autumn starts to experience persistent racial harassment. Kids make fun of her. She hears the N-word consistently and not just used, you know, not just in incidents in which she overhears the N-word being used, she is called the N-word. She experiences this harassment very directly. Her parents try to intervene. They too go to the school district, set up meetings. They actually encourage their daughter, Autumn, to start just taking recordings on her phone. They give her a recording device at one point that she can bring with her to school so that people will believe her. And even that I find interesting, that students feel the need to have a recording ready. You know, just young people who should be able to go to school and just live their lives out, feel the need to be ready with a recording device so that they can be believed later. And I can't imagine being that age and feeling like you're responsible for gathering evidence of that kind. So this goes on for months and months, and it includes a number of boys, but there's really one white male student in particular. And one day she finally snaps this fall and she hears him use the N-word. She grabs him by the hood of a sweatshirt and hits him with an open hand several times while telling him essentially that he needs to stop this behavior, stop using the N-word. And in her recollection of the event, she just felt completely overcome. Like after reporting this, recording these incidents, you know, she identified some of the boys involved that she really had no other option. And that, on top of that, these experiences had actually led her to become increasingly depressed, disconnected from her classes for the first time. And so it was this split second decision that ends up changing Autumn's life. The school immediately punishes her 45 days in a disciplinary alternative school program. And it takes someone who was gunning to be valedictorian and takes them completely off of track. So according to civil rights attorneys, Autumn's story is sort of a particularly upsetting one in this larger pattern. And so that's why this filing includes girls like Autumn in Slayton and in Lubbock Cooper. These were worked on in, in a sort of collaborative way. These parents in these different neighboring areas were in communication with each other. 
And what's fascinating, again, about Autumn's story in particular is that, you know, for months, these parents are coming to administrators and asking for accountability, asking for change, asking for action. But nothing happens until the Black student takes matters into their own hands. Exactly. These examples show a pattern and problem of racism in our area. Antonia, I'm curious to know a little bit more about how these stories got on y'all's radar. I think having a national outsider perspective has been really important for this issue. Thank you. It's it's nice to hear that, especially from someone who works locally and you, and you understand the community so closely. But we've been so lucky because, in fact, over the last really two years now, the two of us have been given opportunities to report on stories of this nature all across Texas. And that's why we kind of bring this broader lens to it. And we try to connect what we're seeing happen to students like Autumn or like Brady and Lubbock Cooper to a larger national story. You know, we have been able to do this because over the last two years, we've built up relationships with lots of families, attorneys, educators, who've grown to trust our reporting. Um, I think they value the opportunity to tell these stories both locally and with a national footprint. And it's been interesting to examine all of these cases at a time when people are debating, legislating, how we talk about race in the classroom. And there's so much discussion of parental rights. We hear that phrase all the time in Texas and in other states that parents have the right to come to school board meetings or to check on what teachers are doing to influence the way that these uh, controversial issues are discussed in schools. But black parents feel like the unacknowledged part of that is that they're not really included in parental rights, Um, that these are primarily white parents' rights to shape how these discussions happen in schools. And even when they have hard evidence like recordings, you know, consistent, very clear patterns of behavior, that it's still an uphill battle to be believed for them and that their wishes aren't going to be included in the broader narrative. As Antonia said, sadly, this isn't happening just in Lubbock. After the break, we'll hear more about racism in schools across Texas. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to Listen in Lubbock. I'm Sarah Self Walbrick. We're talking about racism in our area's schools. The Lubbock Cooper and Slayton school districts have received national news coverage for reports of racist bullying. Parents in those school districts are pursuing federal investigations into the matter. Racism in schools is unfortunately happening across Texas and the rest of the country. NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton has been reporting on this topic for years now. We're lucky to talk with her on today's show. Antonia, you're a co-host of the podcast Southlake, which looked into racism at a school district in the Dallas area. Can you give us a summary? Our podcast tells the in-depth story of one of the very first communities to begin this battle over critical race theory. To some, this story started in 2020 with former President Trump, but in Southlake, Texas, it actually goes back to 2018 when a group of white students recorded themselves chanting the N-word at a party. At first, this community condemns the students' actions and there's this moment of unity where people come together, they agree that this kind of language is abhorrent and they come up with a plan. They form a community council, basically a volunteer group that includes administrators and teachers, but also dozens of parents of all backgrounds 
in this community. And they come together to work on a diversity plan. But that plan takes time. There's lots of debate, different elements that end up in or out of the plan. And by the time it's actually ready to be presented and implemented in the community, we're in a very different political context. It's 2020. George Floyd has been murdered. There are protests happening around the nation. And there are these really difficult conversations starting to happen in schools about inequality, difference, and racism. And there's also a backlash. A lot of folks who are uncomfortable or unaccustomed to having those conversations, who don't want them to be part of curriculum in schools, who don't want teachers to talk about those current events. And so we see this movement of parents reject this diversity plan, raise a number of issues with the contents inside. It's been almost two years since this video was recorded and many of them simply want the community to move on, to move forward. And there ends up sort of being this existential crisis in the town. And we tell the story through a number of key community members and their personal family stories, what being in these hallways in this school district is really like for them. We sit down with the superintendent of the school about what he's going to do to try to bring this community back together. But we also follow a local election. And this is right as all this attention is starting to come down on school board races across the nation. And we're seeing unprecedented amounts of money being just flooding into school board races. And part of the story is also this political action committee that ends up very effectively using the conversation about this diversity plan to push back against any kind of change in policy in the school district, any kind of discussion of these conversations in the classroom. And, you know, today they've still in many ways transformed the school district. They now have the majority of the seats on the school board. They have changed the tone and tenor of the conversation there. And the diversity plan has been effectively killed. And the podcast looks at that entire process over a number of years. But we did our best to kind of tell this again, through the story of so many kids. I think one of the goals Mike and I have always set out on in this reporting, whether it is, you know, a story for Nightly News, you know, one night from Lubbock, Texas, or it is a multi-month, you know, effort on a podcast. We try to put children's voices first because so often in the reporting, you know, it's the parents and it's the powerful politicians who are able to set the tone and the parameters of the conversation. And rarely do we hear from kids themselves, what's it actually like to be in these schools, to have these conversations, to hear you know, this language while you're trying to learn. And so you know, I see this story out of Lubbock as being on a continuum with, in relationship with all that previous reporting that we've spent years building up. Absolutely. Diversity education was at the heart of the Carol ISD issue. And that's something we've heard about a lot in the news since the podcast. And I'm sure we will again as the next Texas legislative session starts. Why is this a controversial issue? You know, it's a that's a tough question because it kind of gets to people's personal life experiences, motivations, um, emotional responses. But I can tell you I've seen in my reporting is that I think there's a number of sort of key trends happening here. First, there are communities all across this country, and in Texas is no exception, where there's a lot of demographic change. There are people from different countries, of different backgrounds, moving into communities in Texas and changing them because they speak different languages or they look different. And one of the challenges 
that comes with the community changing and there being more diversity in an area that may have been, you know, majority, majority white, is that these incidents start to happen. And school administrators and educators can find themselves one step behind and needing to respond to things that maybe they didn't have to talk about that often. And so there's this demographic change happening everywhere that educators are realizing they may be less prepared for than they thought. And so I think that's part of the story here. South Lake has changed. Lubbock Cooper has changed. A lot of the black families there had only moved there in the last couple years. And I think fundamentally, there's this divide in our nation over how do we talk about our history of racism, the history of slavery, some of the horrific things our government has done. You know, these are facts, but how do you talk about them with young children? When is it appropriate to bring those things up in the classroom? What's the latest update from Southlake? And where do you see these conversations and actions going in the future? Well, right now, there's a federal investigation into the school district. There are a number of complaints that range from issues with race and national origin to gender and sexuality that investigators out of the Department of Education are actively working on. So we're waiting to hear what happens with that. And for anyone who's unfamiliar with what happens when the federal government comes to town in this way, it can take months, sometimes even years for these investigations to wrap up. They send people from the Department of Education to the school. They have to interview families, kids, teachers. They need to request and examine a lot of records from the school district. And they need to verify all kinds of claims that may have been made. That work alone can take a long time. But if they do end up believing that students' civil rights have been violated in a school district, whether it's Southwake or it's Lubbock Cooper, they have a couple mechanisms for holding schools accountable. The primary one is that schools, public schools, depend on the federal government for money. And that's really the carrot on the stick there, where if you violate federal civil rights laws, they can ask you to implement new plans, diversity plans, Uh, changes in your school district, new student codes of conduct. And if you don't do that, you don't get the federal government's money. I'll be sure to link to the Southlake podcast in the web version of today's episode. You can find that at ttupublicmedia.org. We'll be right back. This is Listen in Lubbock, and I'm Sarah Self-Walbrick. Today, we're talking about recent incidents of racism in Lubbock County schools. NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton brought this local issue to a national audience. She's also covered similar situations in the state, like in the Dallas suburb of Southlake. Antonia told us about these issues and a little bit about the process of what could happen next. As we've talked about, this federal complaint was kind of the last resort for the parents in Lubbock County. What are they hoping for? What do they want to come out of this? Families want the federal government to acknowledge that their students' civil rights have been violated and take action on their behalf by essentially forcing these school districts to get on a corrective action plan, whether that means changing their student code of conduct or implementing diversity plans of some kind. And the process can take a couple years of monitoring where basically the federal government keeps its eye on a school district that it's identified and ensures that they actually comply. It's for many of these families that I've talked to, it's honestly, it's a bit of a depressing process. While they are grateful in the case of Southlake that 
investigators are actively looking into this, and in the case of Lubbock, that they're very hopeful that their cases will be taken on. It's a sad moment for them to feel like they can't get that assistance, get that support from anyone within the state or within their own local community. I'm sure it's hard to know that change probably won't happen for a while either. There's a good chance that some of these kids that are currently being affected by this will have graduated by the time that any meaningful changes happen. And that would be a very sad thing to carry through the process. Absolutely. I talked to parents about that too, that the change that you're spending so many hours of your week fighting for, it might not actually ever come in time for your kid. That's very likely. You know, some of these kids, they are, you know, either in late middle school or they are already into high school. And because these processes can take many months or years, they might be graduating by the time anything changes. But what they tell me is that fighting for civil rights, that's the mindset that you have to have. Sometimes the changes you fought so hard for, you don't get to benefit from them. But you're doing it so that other families, other kids who look like your kids, talk like your kids, sound like your kids, that they don't go through what your child had to go through, that you're trying to make things better for people who are going to come up behind you. In Lubbock, the school district seems committed right now to trying to have some additional conversations with these parents, both publicly in the school board setting, but also parents are pushing potentially for private meetings as well. Um, And so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. There's definitely some action that administrators like the superintendent, Keith Bryant, can take right now to build better relationships, to get some better understanding and, and to bridge some of the communication gaps that I mentioned. But ultimately, we might not know how this all ends for years now. The Lubbock Cooper School District's Board of Trustees actually just met about this. Here's some of what was said. The district took immediate action to eradicate racially motivated incidents at Laura Bush. This included dispatching additionally, additional administrators to the Laura Bush Middle School campus to observe and identify students exhibiting racist behavior and administer appropriate discipline, notifying all Laura Bush school families of the reports and requesting they initiate conversations with their children about the damaging nature of racist rhetoric, directly addressing the Laura Bush Middle School student body by grade level to communicate the seriousness of these hateful actions and the severity of the resulting disciplinary consequences. And reiterating to the Laura Bush Middle School staff the expectations of addressing, exterminating, racially motivated behaviors, actions, and speech exhibited by students. So Antonia, where do you see these conversations going from here? Well, I definitely have my eye on this next legislative session. I think it's very likely we're going to see these issues come back up again. Bills are already being filed. Lawmakers are going to be debating these issues. And so it'll be very interesting to see how these issues impact families like the families we've spoken about, uh, how they impact teachers, change the subjects teachers can teach, whether it's in English classes or, you know, social studies and history courses. I think it's important to keep an eye on all of the conversations about public education right now, our beliefs about what public education should be. Everything from how it's funded and how we support the teachers and the people who work hard every day to, you know, teach and to help our students grow but also, you know, what the scope is 
of what's appropriate and allowed to be talked about in the classroom. I think because these issues have been so politicized, they've led to transformation, particularly on the local level with changes in local leadership, you know, complete takeovers of school boards by these very well-funded political groups. I think we're only going to see that escalate. And that's something that people should keep an eye on in their communities. I also imagine we'll see parents get more and more engaged. I think people were shocked by, you know, coming out of COVID, they were surprised by how many contentious debates were coming, how quickly the laws were changing. I think it was a lot for parents and educators, but I think people understand the playing field a bit better now. And so I think there are gonna be a lot of families coming and speaking in Austin to their lawmakers. I think we're gonna see more people at school board meetings, and this is gonna still be a really important beat for reporters from the local to the national level to really pay close attention to. And anyone who has kids in public schools should pay close attention to these issues and talk to your own kids about them. Figure out how you wanna have these conversations as a family. I've, I've talked to parents who are trying to prepare their kids for what they would do if they heard some of this kind of language in school. And so that, that one of the things that does give me hope is this generation of kids who seem so comfortable talking about these things, raising their hand when they think something's wrong. They're often kinder to each other than we are as adults. And so I think the other piece of advice that I'd give to people is listen to kids when they tell you about what their lives are like in school. I learned so much from kids as a reporter. I know that while I'm, I'm gonna be paying attention to the broader trends politically in the state, I'm also keeping my eye on just what young people are saying because they often have a really interesting and undervalued perspective. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton for joining us. I'll link to her reporting in the web version of today's show. Find that in more local news and programming at ttupublicmedia.org. Thanks for listening in. Thank you.